Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, June 15th. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. Well, last week we talked about Virginia's primaries for governor, but while the Democratic side was the hot ticket going in, it was actually the GOP primary that ended up being much, much closer. Corey Stewart, an underfunded Trump-supporting county supervisor who made his big splash in the campaign defending Confederate monuments, came very close to beating Ed Gillespie, a former Republican National Committee chairman. We'll talk about what that means for the governor's race and whether it has any broader implications for the Republican primary heading into primaries next year for the 2018 elections, among other things. We'll also talk about the White House trying to rally big GOP donors to give a jumpstart to its policy agenda. But we're going to start off today's episode by talking about the shooting that happened at a practice for the Republican congressional baseball team on Wednesday. House Majority Whip Steve Scalise uh, and others were shot by a gunman uh, who was ultimately shot and killed by Capitol Police officers who were there and uh, prevented things from getting worse than they they were. So we're going to talk a little bit about, about that, some of the reaction to that, and whether it's going to herald a little bit of a change in our politics or not. A few quick items before we jump into all that. Remember, if you have questions for the Nerdcast crew, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And as always, please remember to uh, subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. We're always looking to grow the show, find more listeners, and also make it better for you, our listeners. So the more feedback we get, the better. All right, and with that, let's welcome our guests on the Nerdcast today. We have national political reporter Eliana Johnson. Hola. Uh, chief investigative reporter Ken Vogel. That's me. Hi. And senior reporter Nancy Cook. Hi, guys. Get your fill of Ken in while you can today, everybody. <laughs> That's right. This is my last Nerdcast. I'm leaving Politico after 10 and a half amazing years going over to the New York Times. Uh, I'm going to miss you guys. Well, yeah. Miss you, Ken. Unfortunately, we could not get the rights to play Green Day's "Time of Our Lives" over uh. top of this, but you will be missed, Ken, uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's playing in my head right now. <laughs> All right, another so turning. <laughs> get it. <laughs> so, first segment up today. Um, the no no data point for this one. It kind of speaks for itself. It's uh, the shooting that happened on Wednesday in Virginia that wounded House Majority Whip Steve Scalise and others at a practice for the Republican congressional baseball team. Uh, Scalise is still in the hospital. He's in critical condition, multiple surgeries. This has sparked a lot of conversation in the past uh, 24 hours about divisive political rhetoric and, and, you know, violent rhetoric and whether or not that played a role in, in sparking this event. And, you know, whether the divisiveness of this era is different or worse than it's been 
uh, in the past. And obviously, this is not the first time in recent years we've seen a member of Congress get shot. Uh, go back to 2011 and Gabby Giffords. Uh, in Tucson. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as to the question as to whether this is different or worse than in the past, I mean, clearly it's it's hugely significant. We should not take lightly that uh, a a member of Congress, a leadership member, a member of congressional leadership who is in line to the presidency was attacked and critically wounded. Obviously, we're hoping for the best for Steve Scalise. Um, you know, that's that's a violation in some ways of, of, of it's not just a crime. It's a violation of like this. You know, trust that we have in, in our uh, in our elected leadership and uh, the sort of um, way that we, you know, uh, hold. We expect a lot of our political leadership, but we should, uh, you know, uh, uh, treat uh, them in a certain way in return. Um, but you know, I do think there's a little bit of sort of short sightedness around the reaction. This thinking that this is somehow like a pivotal moment, or that um, it's going to change. It's going to, in some ways, you know, tone down the political rhetoric of divisiveness. Um, you know, we haven't seen that in the past. You mentioned Gabby Giffords. There was a brief moment of unity after that, and 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 you know, even uh, a little bit of uh, debate over uh, uh, gun control, but very short lived. Additionally, I think like it highlights a little bit of like self absorption in, in Washington D.C. Like there, there, there's political violence. Unfortunately, there there was political violence as recently as last year at Donald Trump rallies, and there are lawsuits working their way through state and federal courts over that. And, you know, there wasn't the same kind of reaction to it as we're seeing now. Uh, there's also, you know, there's gun crime uh, all over the uh, country uh, every day. Uh, crimes involving firearms, people dying, and uh, and we don't see this level of reaction. So the fact that here in Washington, D.C., there's this concentration of media and politics and this sort of political media industrial complex, we tend to take these things much more seriously and sort of spotlight them and maybe a somewhat disproportionate way when they hit close to home. I think that's what's happening now. Obviously, in no way am I intending to diminish the significance or, um, you know, really horrific nature of this. I thought one one of the really dispiriting things that, that was coming out yesterday in, in a stream of dispiriting news was that that amidst all the reaction to this, that a number of other members of Congress, Republican and Democrat, described uh, getting death threats emailed to them or to their offices uh, as this news was coming out. People saying, you're next, or, like horrific uh, things like that. And it, it seems at least like it. Um, it's certainly, certainly easier now for people to make those kind of threats uh, over the internet. And it seems like there's it it just seems like there's more of it going on whether that means you know more people are acting on it i think is actually a very different separate thing but but it was it was pretty stunning to watch and it's more on both sides it's more that it like allows you know it, it sort of creates the divisiveness in some ways people attacking each other on social media behind the sort of anonymity of their egg avatar and their fake name uh and it also allows people to disseminate these threats and like we see that in the media too i mean i remember yes. Like I, I actually felt like some of the, you know, some of the most sort of aggressive targeting of me uh, was was uh, back in 2008 covering the Clinton campaign. Interestingly, I got like, people emailing me death threats through like the Politico web interface with these like made up email addresses that I couldn't trace. Um, 
But I think it's just so much more common now that we get these things through social media and through, um, you know, direct messages and the like that, um, you know, we, we tend to like not take them seriously. And this, this shows ways in which they, they can be taken seriously. It also shows how the, the sort of dilemma for law enforcement, how do they know what's serious when there's just this deluge of really aggressive, threatening language and this guy – uh, the alleged shooter had a, had a history of of such rhetoric on social media that obviously did not tip the alarm, and uh, you know I I guess probably should have in retrospect. But with so many people out there saying similar things, how do you know what's serious? Well, I think one of the the things that's too bad too is that so many lawmakers were quite shaken yesterday about what had happened and the shooting. You know, Congress is um, you know pretty small place, and everyone knows each other, um, and. You know, one of the concerns that I have moving forward is just, you know, the, one of the great things about Congress is you can walk up to lawmakers and, you know, lawmakers have town halls in their home districts. And if there's all these security threats and, and people are getting death threats, like will some of that transparency and just voters' access to their lawmakers go away? Like will lawmakers want to do town halls this summer if they're worried about getting shot? You know, will they want to do appearances in public as much? Um, you know, the well, way they want to run for reelection. Right. I mean, well, that that's a whole different story. But just, you know, will they want to be out there as much public facing? And I think that that's a really key part of being a member of Congress and a, a key thing to have voters be able to interact with them and also just hold them accountable and talk to them. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I don't think this is going to change much of it. Uh, much of anything, I think. Uh, I think members of Congress are going to continue to be publicly accessible. Um, I think they that I don't think the shooting will will change many of their personal plans to run for reelection. Um, I think it's you know I don't I don't think that um, political rhetoric was really to blame for this. Um, you, you can't blame Bernie Sanders for one of his supporters going out and doing something crazy, and you can't blame Sarah Palin for you know uh, one of her. Um, you know, arguably one of her supporters going out and doing something crazy. I think um, they're crazy people um, in in a big country who are going to unfortunately go out and do um, crazy things. And the fact is, I think now the connection to politics is that um, polls show increasingly people people increasingly define themselves by their political party. They're more and more bothered by their children marrying um, members of. Uh, a different political party, and perhaps that's why um, th- there is more political violence. But I think if it wasn't political violence, it would be something else. I, there's just changing affiliations uh, over time. I think that's a really good point. Is that the the this is what people latch on to right now, as opposed to something else. And with respect to the the Gifford shooting in 2011, it it it's not even clear. It, I, I think there's actually a big controversy it's about not, this I right mean, the now. Guy but, was, Full-fledged, diagnosed, mentally ill. Right, Unla- right, right. Unlike the shooting he, yesterday, he where may it have, doesn't appear to have been. And he, so the, he may have latched on to political rhetoric, but it, but he wasn't necessarily kind of primarily motivated by politics, right? And the, but the, it's um, like Eliana said, it's taking on this this kind of like blood sport place in people's psyches, um, and. Um, I think pe- people define themselves more and more by the by political ideology as opposed to their religion or their families, and, and the internet has helped by I think increasing isolation, um, and perhaps 
depression, unhappiness, and then those sorts of things. Um, but my general view is that if it it's it's difficult, and I heard an FBI profiler interviewed this morning saying. How do you pinpoint what made somebody snap at this point rather than six weeks from now or two weeks prior? It's very difficult to um, to define, you know, what what makes somebody snap in a given moment, and and whether it really is politics or if it, it might not have been something else at a different time. Well, and just for context, the Washington Post had this great graphic yesterday. Just this is actually the 154th mass shooting this year. Um, I feel like that's become such a common occurrence that we don't – I mean obviously this happened in Washington. It targeted members of Congress. So it was quite high profile. But these have been happening you know, with great regularity all the time. Like we mentioned at the top of the segment, this is still a, a developing story. Congressman Scalise is still in the hospital. Uh, hopefully he his, his treatment goes well and he and the other uh, victims of the shooting enjoy speedy recoveries. And we'll, we'll be checking back in on this story uh, as, as it – continues to unravel over the course of the next few weeks. All right. Well, let's let's shift from there into a little bit more of the, the conventional – the news that we were expecting to be be following this week before the, the shooting kind of intervened and, and really um, took over what everyone was thinking about and talking about um, earlier this week. Our, our data point for our second segment is the number 12. And that's uh, from about a dozen Republican megadonors collectively representing hundreds of millions of dollars in political giving gathered with President Donald Trump's legislative director in the White House last week to try and uh, rally support for the Trump agenda. And this uh, this meeting, which was reported by Politico's Tara Palmieri and Ken Vogel, uh, came days after legislative director, White House legislative director Mark Short acknowledged that the Russia investigation has hampered that Trump agenda. And on the same day that James Comey testified before Congress in an ex- yet another example of the, the way that that, uh, that investigation continues to uh, hamper and and distract attention from this. So, so Ken, uh, you wrote the story. It seems like an effort to kind of reset, restart, refocus on on some legislation, uh, which we've talked about hitting hitting trouble for a few weeks now because it's just very hard for people to focus on, uh, for Congress to focus, for the White House to focus on agenda items. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, there's a little more here, and that's that. Uh, some in the White House privately blame the lack of support from some of these big money outside groups that are funded by these very donors who are brought in for this briefing for the inability to get the legislative agenda on track and particularly uh, the initial failure to pass the AHCA, the Obamacare repeal and replace bill through the House. Of course, it subsequently was passed. A, a, a different version of it was passed. But if you remember, that was like just a huge embarrassment for the White House and for uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan that this bill didn't pass the first time. And some of the folks in the White House point the fingers at these constellation of outside groups that are typically supportive of uh, Republicans and Republican legislative priorities that were largely silent. And some of that is that Trump just never had a whole lot of support from the big money class as well as uh, – nor rather did he have support from you know, some of these tr- traditional outside groups. He did have support from some like the Heritage Foundation, which Nancy uh, and others at Politico Eliana as well have written extensively about. Um, yeah, but, don't forget me, Ken. Right. No, those, those are many, credit, many co-bylines. In fact, I think I squeezed in as a third byline you on some you of your stories. Freeloading off you guys and your uh, uh, great sources and uh, and insight into the conservative movement, but uh, 
Nonetheless, this is this is a group that is seen as pivotal for if there are going to be legislative victories and a legislative agenda, whatever that might look like, that th- this team, this group is seen as pivotal. And I think that was highlighted by the fact you mentioned that Mark Short gave the briefing. That's right. He did. And it's also important to note that Mark Short has deep connections to the party's money class, having worked a stint as uh, sort of the, the head of the Koch brothers uh, outside advocacy network. But nonetheless, uh, uh, President Trump himself stopped by this briefing to say hi, as did Vice President Mike Pence, who actually spent some time at the briefing. Reince Priebus, the White House Chief of Staff, Senior Counselor Kellyanne Conway, all stopped by this briefing just for 12 people. So that shows you how important this is. It also answers the question, what was Trump doing on the day of the Comey testimony? Well, this is part of it. And Nancy, I mean, you've you've talked about it, it seems like the, this effort is obviously trying to gin up support for the big ticket items. Ken mentioned health care. There's a few other things. And we'll, we'll get to health care again in a minute. But um, Nancy, you, you've seen a little bit more of a focus on kind of small ball items recently just to try and start to not to return to the ball metaphor, but to try and get the ball rolling a little bit on some some accomplishments. Yeah, I mean, healthcare and tax reform are sort of the big goals of this administration and the big goals, I would say, of what Republicans really want to be able to deliver to voters in time for the 2018 midterms. But I also feel like there's been a realization at the White House um, that it's kind of important to highlight these smaller ball things that they're doing. They've been, you know, on the 100 day mark, they tried to highlight, for instance, all of their work that they've done to roll back Obama regulations. And they have done quite a lot of work to roll back the Obama's legacy. But more recently, we've seen them emphasizing things like, you know, infrastructure week and workforce development. Although infrastructure week also happened to coincide with Comey testimony it week. Did. And there were a it lot did. of snide comments about that, you know, because there was not a whole lot of discussion of infrastructure about like, how's infrastructure week going for you? Well, and that's part of it, right? They're trying to unveil not even like these fully fleshed out proposals, but just some other ideas that they have that they can do through executive orders um, to try to sort of say, hey, we're still trying to do things legislatively or at least through executive action on policy. And we're not totally swamped by the Comey stuff and the Russia investigations. I feel like there's a real sensitivity internally to that. And this is also, I think, feeds into the desire to sign a bunch of executive orders just to show progress on something. You know, it's interesting. I think all presidents come into office and they they have like big, big plans and they kind of like look down on some of the small ball stuff. In fact, Obama himself famously swept into office, you know, saying that they weren't going to do small ball. He said, quote, not going to do school uniforms. And that was a, uh, you know, a slight at the Clinton administration, the last Democratic administration uh, before him, focusing on some of these small ball things, including uh, school uniform uh, proposals. But nonetheless, Obama himself, despite obviously having Obamacare and some other, uh, you know, big ticket accomplishments, ended up pushing some modest proposals as well, like uh, you know, jobs proposals, a new uh, a fatherhood pledge, uh, graphic tobacco warnings, updated sunscreen requirements, an anti-bullying summit. So this is sort of in that small ball territory, uh, the money ball, if you will, which might please the big money donors. I don't know. Actually, I think they probably want tax reform. Uh, but nonetheless, it's sort of similar to uh, what, what Obama was doing, you know, late in his first term after Obamacare and what uh, Bill Clinton famously did when he was under siege. Yeah, but I think the difference is, is that Obama did do small ball stuff after, um, you know, his two years. Big ball. 
After big ball stuff. After, but yeah, he did big ball stuff though. I, I'm going to stop this ball metaphor. Honestly, it's becoming ridiculous. But you know, you know actually, his... for our listeners, I should just point out since they can't see that at the political offices for ten plus years, I've been sitting on a giant blue inflatable exercise ball. So anytime there. Ball analogies or metaphors, it often comes back to me. I thank you guys for not doing it, but I'm just preemptively putting it out there on my last Nerdcast so everyone knows, yes, I sit on a big blue ball. What? Ken has killer abs. It's, it's my core more, <laughs> but thanks for noticing. The abs hold the core together. The abs are the back of the core? Yeah. Go. I feel like this segment is starting to okay, not be I'm going to drag it out of the gutter and bring it back to the <laughs> wonkiness. Basically, the point is, is that Obama, in his first two years, you know, they did the health care law. They did Dodd-Frank. They passed the stimulus bill. You know, they ended up uh, definitely paying for it politically by losing the House. And they did a lot of that just through Democrats. They didn't have really Republican support. However, um, they did do a lot of things. And I feel like Republicans... Republicans had this hope since they controlled Congress and the White House that Trump would also be able to do those things. And there's some disappointment that they have been so slow to do it. And also some growing anxiety, I would say, about what that means for 2018. You know, if the White House is blaming some of these top dollar donors for their inability to push things through Congress, uh, I think that shows you that the White House is grasping at straws, uh, looking for explanations about why uh, they haven't been able to push uh, their legislative agenda. Um, they've also been saying that the Russia investigation and the ballooning scandals um, are preventing them from pushing things through Congress. Um, you know, I would ask, what exactly have those investigations been, prevented them from pushing through Congress? I really don't think they prevented anything from getting through Congress. And it's unclear exactly what the White House's legislative agenda is at this point. Um, there, I think there would be strong support for a tax reform bill. Uh, the White House has yet to produce that bill. What we have so far is one page of bullet points. And when the president has gone to the Hill to push his health reform package. Um, He's only undermined um, the work that was done in the House. So I think the White House has its own problems. Um, And and I would add to the fact in in courting these top dollar donors um, and supporters, the president ran on a platform of not needing their help and so on. So um, the the White House is in a difficult situation, but it's I think it's difficult for them to lay the blame at the feet of uh, of top dollar donors. Um, I I think they have to um, look to, you know, their inability to push substance to the Hill and then let Republican leadership on the Hill carry the ball forward. That's a really good point. I mean, if you look at one of the most active Republican outside groups this year has been American Action Network, which has been really pushing health care reform. They've done some tax stuff, too. But if you look at the content of the ads that they've actually been putting out, it's very vague because, again, this is all happening like very quietly behind closed doors. The public principles sometimes don't all add up. Um, but also the again their effort to build this case in public, I think, and to build backing for it in public, uh, I think has has is what has gotten distracted by the the Russia investigation. And Ken, I mean, we saw this again yesterday, right? Your your story about about these donor trying to kind of wrangle these donors to give some air cover uh, was uh, happened at the same time as some big developments in in the the investigation that are capturing a lot of public attention right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me say, if you look at the, the groups that are out there doing stuff, you mentioned American Action Network. That's one. Certainly, the Koch Brothers Network is now starting to uh, do an advertising campaign that's supportive of tax reform generally 
and even supportive of some of the sort of vague outline that Donald Trump, uh, you know, has put out on it. But those are not groups that are uh, that are sort of stocked with money that uh, comes from comes from donors who were supportive of Trump. In fact, most of the mega donor class was not supportive of Trump. There are a handful of folks who were the Mercers certainly are, are in that group. The DeVosses. Uh, they were and both were represented at this uh, at this summit, as was Paul Singer, who was actually a leader of the Never Trump movement, a leading funder of the Never Trump movement. But look, I mean, it's true that the, the Trump administration has not done a ton to bring these donors along. They are not really good at donor maintenance. This is a classic donor maintenance type thing. It was certainly notable for the timing of it, but it's also notable that. They actually are doing it because they have not done a ton of it. And I think that shows in some of the, the, the lack of outside group support. The Mercers have been out there. They do have a group that has actually gone after Comey in ads saying that he's a partisan. But that's that's really the exception. There aren't a lot of Trump donors who are spending a lot of money to support the agenda. Now, as to the backdrop and as to uh, what's sort of preventing it, yes, the Russia stuff is not going away. The Washington Post, as you alluded to, Scott last night popped a story saying that, uh, quoting five intelligence officials, saying that uh, the Mueller investigation is now looking to um, uh, explore this obstruction of justice issue more broadly than just with Comey, that they want to talk to Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, uh, Mike Rogers, the head of the NSA, and Rogers' deputy, um, and they have all agreed to be interviewed by Mueller and the what the understanding what the post is is uh, reporting is that it is about this claim that Trump or his team sought to obstruct the investigation into Russia. That's a just one hundred percent self inflicted wound, and it shows why they're having such a hard time moving past these uh, the the sort of Russia issue. Well, I also just feel like I, I yeah I feel like Trump is sort of at the root of all these problems. And, and there, a lot of them are self-inflicted. Like, you know, he decided to fire the FBI director. Like, how will we look back on that? How will presidents in the future, you know, look back on that decision? And also just in terms of his policy agenda, I don't think that he himself or the people around him have grasped the way that, you know, a president frequently needs to either like kick off a big policy push or bring it home. And, you know, yes, he brought home helping the House pass its health care bill, but then he stepped all over it earlier this week by telling Republican senators in a closed door meeting that the House bill was mean. And so, you know, what is that going to say to Republican senators? Are they going to want to vote for a bill that the president will then trash, uh, you know, a few weeks later? It doesn't really instill a lot of confidence in people on the Hill. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. He is the one who's sabotaging his his legislative agenda. He is the one who's adding fuel to the fire on Russia. Uh, and so to blame Democrats or Republicans in Congress or the FBI or big donors, all that kind of misses the point. It is, however, consistent with how Trump has proceeded in much of his public life, which is when something goes wrong, the buck definitely does not stop with him. Let's take a quick break before our next segment to hear from a sponsor. All right, our third and final data point for or our third and final segment, I should say, uh, for this episode has a data point of 1.3. 
1.3 points was the margin of victory for Republican Ed Gillespie in Virginia's Republican gubernatorial primary on Tuesday night. Now, as listeners may recall from last week, we were pretty focused on the Democratic side of that race. Uh, Gillespie was expected to skate to the Republican nomination. This is the former Republican National Committee chairman and the 2014 nominee for Senate in Virginia. So pretty well-known, well-established guy. We have uh, in studio today to talk about it, Kevin Robillard, a campaign pro reporter who was keeping pretty close track of this race for the last few months. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Scott. So tell us, how did Gillespie almost get snuck up on it? Well, did get snuck up on, just didn't end up losing in this race versus Corey Stewart. Who's yeah. Corey Stewart? So Corey Stewart is the county executive of Prince William County, Virginia, uh, which people act like it's rural or small. It's not. It's an outer ring suburb of D.C. It's pretty quickly growing. It's actually now majority minority, although the electorates that uh, elect Stewart are usually majority white because uh, he gets elected in sort of off off year elections. And he he's a pretty serious politician. He's a guy who's won in this fairly large county four times before, but he's also considered a bit of a sideshow character at times. Um, throughout much of this race, he was really focused on the issue of preventing the removal of Confederate memorials throughout Virginia, which is not anyone's idea of generally a top button issue, even in a Republican primary. And so a lot of people really discounted him. Most of the public polling had him well, well behind Gillespie. But he was able to sneak up on Gillespie in part because Gillespie sort of stopped campaigning for the last month. Uh, he was up on the air with television ads, but those television ads were as much general election focused as they were focused on the primary. They mostly just talked about his plans for tax cuts, didn't really address a lot of hot button social issues that the Republican base likes to hear about, like abortion, for instance. And so – Gillespie just sort of shut down, didn't really participate in debates, basically wasn't campaigning all that hard for the last month and sort of used this old playbook that you used to use against primary challengers where you wouldn't acknowledge them. He didn't attack Stewart ever. He would respond to Stewart's attacks occasionally. But mostly he seemed to be trying to not leave any oxygen for Stewart and not really get in a one-on-one -on -one battle with him at all. And I think there's also probably another lesson that we could all keep learning about polling in all this that – um, the even though Gillespie was well ahead in all the polling, he never had a majority, and I think that's probably becoming a more and more important thing to keep track of, especially in the wake of the 2016 election, what happened with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, stuff like that. But the the you know a little bit more kind of skepticism of leads that that still have a large number of undecideds uh, in there. But m more broadly, I mean the this. There, there were some commentary on, on Twitter and from Republican strategists on Tuesday night into, into Wednesday about uh, what, what this kind of says about where their base – where the party base writ large is right now and whether um, the folks who are supposed to be thinking about this sort of thing have really come to grips with the degree to which um, being a pro-Trump candidate can animate the base and, and the, the kind of transformation within the, the primary electorate of their party. Well, I mean, let's not forget this isn't over. If it works out, if Gillespie is able to pull this off, maybe this will be the blueprint, you know, that he, that he sort of stayed away from the divisive issues that do animate the base, which would have been— If he's, he's able to pull off the general election win, you mean. Exactly. I right. see. I see. I mean, he's, he's in pretty good position. He, he's a smart dude. He's a good candidate. I mean, he's, he's a candidate who is sort of vulnerable to challenges from the base, but it's that old— Jeb Bush maxim that didn't work out so well for Jeb in 2016. Got to be willing to lose the primary to win the general 
Ed Gillespie's in pretty good position right now. I'd also like to point out and take this back to 2014 when Gillespie ran a surprisingly strong uh, campaign against uh, Mark Warner, the sitting senator from um, Virginia, former governor of Virginia. Uh, and he almost beat him despite the polls showing him uh, uh, not really within striking distance. And I think that shows that, you know, his people, his team, he's got like the, the savviest folks in Republican politics working for him. And, yeah, it's a liability that he has this background in Republican politics. I mean, he's not just the uh, former chair of the RNC. This guy like created super PACs like he and Karl Rove are like the creators of the big money era that Donald Trump ran against. Nonetheless, uh, he's he's I think he's kind of in the catbird seat right now. And it'll be something that Republicans will look to in 2018 as if Trump continues to be toxic or becomes more toxic. They'll 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 try to uh, be like Ed. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about it that way. So now Gillespie is preparing, as Ken alluded to, to face uh, Democratic Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam in the general election. This is going to be one of the most closely watched, biggest races of 2017. Uh, at least November 2017. Uh, we've also got the Georgia special election coming up next next week, which we'll talk about in a little bit in a moment. But uh, uh, Kevin, tell us a little bit about Northam's primary win on the Democratic side. Again, we discussed this last week. It was expected to be pretty close. It was held up as this example of the the, the battle royale between the wings of the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, but there, there was a little bit more to it than that. Yeah, it's it's difficult to draw a real ideological conclusion from this. When in reality, Northam had so many advantages of just endorsements, money. He blocked and tackled better than Perriello did. Every single statewide official in Virginia and every single Democratic member of Virginia's state legislature had endorsed Northam. That is just an astonishing feat for someone who faced a primary. No one flipped after Perriello got in the race. That matters a lot. The other thing is Northam ended up ended up outspending Perriello by about a two-to-one margin on television. Neither one of these guys was particularly well-known. And really, when a candidate isn't very well-known, if you can just see on TV that they've been endorsed, in the case of Northam, by you know the fairly popular governor of the state, the state's two fairly popular senators, by an abortion rights group like NARAL, that if you're a Democratic primary voter, you probably have a pretty fond opinion of, all of that's going to help a lot. The other thing that matters here is that Northam and Perriello were never really a good liberal versus moderate matchup. Northam was pretty liberal. <laughs> Northam's pretty liberal. And really, both of these guys started their careers out as moderates and have become more liberal over time. I think that's that's actually one of the most interesting things. And, you know, it's been a while since we've thought about this because the campaign was raging and so on. But the uh, Northam is a guy who has said he voted for George W. Bush for president twice. Perriello is a guy who, when he ran for Congress the first time and won in 2008, uh, Part of his platform was encouraging self-deportation of uh, undocumented immigrants, not exactly in the main line of the current Democratic Party, uh, but where, you know, and kind of shows how far the party has shifted since these guys got their start. Yeah, but I mean, and I think that there is something that you can actually read into it to quibble a little bit with my boy K. Robes over here about the sort of battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. I agree that it's local. Like uh, th- this was an example of like local concerns and local endorsements, local personalities trumping, trumping, uh, sort of overriding the national uh, perspective. But from that national perspective, there were folks who were projecting 
influential folks who were projecting onto Periello this mantle of the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, or the Obama wing of the party, he ran ads of himself with Obama in uh, sort of near saturation levels down the stretch there. He got big money for, to, into a super PAC from George Soros, from I think uh, Simons, from some of these other Sussman, 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 Sussman yeah. not Simons, right? Some of these other major New York liberal donors who are like the funders of the resistance and of uh, the sort of you know keepers of the flame of the liberal wing of the party. They saw this as a chance to say something about the direction of the party, and they lost. Well, I think you're absolutely right that there was a, an enormous attempt to impose an analytical framework on the race on the Democratic side and to say that Periello was um, the resistance, the left-wing candidate, and Northam was a more moderate. And in fact, their their public persona or their public presentation lent, lent itself to that because Northam is – you know, the Southern doctor and Periello, I think, comes off as, as the more liberal of the two, even though their positions are virtually indistinguishable. But in fact, um, you know, that that framework really didn't fit. Yeah. Building off of what Eliana said, I once had a Northam consultant complain to me that Northam's considered a moderate just because he has a Southern drawl. And sometimes it really did seem that way. He's from um, real Virginia, I mean, as Sarah Palin would say. I mean, the thing is, so is Periello. He's from Charlottesville, which is a university town, but it's not one of these. It's not in the Northern Virginia. Do we suburbs. count? Do we count Charlottesville as real Virginia? I don't know what the map of real Virginia yeah, looks I feel like, like. But I feel like we need to get a real Virginia yeah, that, in here. To roll that's up. that's like on the outer Katie? edges of the DC yeah. metro area. I would good know, food by the down way, there. That in, in the polls, um, I think Corey Stewart. He was on. You know, his polling was uh, underrepresentative of his actual support mm-hmm. in yes. rural areas, which is something mm-hmm. we saw in the presidential ele- election. Uh, Gillespie's support almost pr- was. Uh, predominantly came from southeastern Virginia, um, and Corey Stewart's support almost predominantly came from the entire rest of the state, which is uh, more rural areas and something to watch going forward. As yeah, well. I mean, that gets back to another thing. We were talking about polling before that Republican pollsters were talking about after uh, the 2016 election. Obviously, the polling, what polling misses there were in 2016 worked out in their favor, so they weren't right. too exercised about it in the moment. But we're talking about it's really hard to poll uh to to pull the rural sections of states the just the way the uh, you know with response rates to polling going down and the fact that there's less population uh there you know by geography it makes it really difficult to get an accurate sample and and with kind of the results of elections stratifying by uh urban versus rural and urban and suburban versus rural at this point that makes it really difficult to get an accurate read on what an entire state is doing so that, that's probably something we should really keep an eye on for the general election between Gillespie and Northam that's going to be uh going on for the next what four four or five months mm-hmm. it it is also worth noting Stewart also outperformed in suburban areas he won Loudoun County um or excuse me actually he just narrowly lost Loudoun County it looked like he was winning on election night but it it's since flipped. It's since flipped back mm-hmm. to Gillespie. Loudoun County is one of the richest places in the United States uh, based on per capita income. And Stewart nearly won it. He nearly won several other pretty wealthy exurban counties in Virginia. So this isn't a simple tale of you know rural Trump voters coming out. These were you know a conservative base voters who 
found Ed Gillespie lacking for whatever reason. Mm. I mean, well, it's sort of shocking that the dude who ran on like protecting Confederate monuments was able to perform as well as he did. I don't think that's something that the big brains in the Republican Party mm-hmm. are like super pleased about. Yeah, and it's not something that that you would expect. It makes sense for that to play in real Virginia, quote unquote. It doesn't particularly make sense for it to play in Loudoun County. Um, and so I think there were clearly Loudoun some other – County is the home of Trump National Golf Course. So, yes. you know. There we go. That's, <laughs> the, that's the, the key to the puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, this race, we're going to be keeping a close eye on it uh, through November. Let's shift gears though right before we end. I want to talk uh, briefly – again, something we talked about last week. We got the Georgia special election coming up on Tuesday. Uh, I said – before, you know, Virginia governor, maybe the, the biggest ra- what we thought was going to be the biggest race to watch in 2017. But when the two parties spend 50 million dollars on a House race, I feel like uh, that's a pretty good signal that they think it's important. That's a record, uh, by the way, that's almost almost twice as much as the previous record for any House race ever. Uh, and we're seeing it's coming down to the wire between Democrat John Ossoff and Karen Handel. Seems like Democrats are a little more confident than Republicans right now, but it's it's a pretty Republican district and there's a sense that anything could happen. Yeah, it's not very difficult to find a Republican consultant who's willing to complain about Karen Handel's campaign, uh, which has been something of a pattern for Republicans in these special elections. Uh, you heard complaints about Greg Gianforte's campaign. You heard complaints about... This was before he body slammed yes, the reporter. before even before he bled. You heard complaints about Ron Estes' campaign in Kansas. So... It is something where it might be a thing where national Republicans are trying to blame these candidates for poor campaigns instead of facing up to the fact that they're dealing with a very, very difficult political environment. But at the same time, you know, I've heard Karen Handel called Martha Coakley and Pearls and, <laughs> you know, some of her ads don't really seem to be in touch. Uh, a lot of them seem to be bragging about her long political experience, which isn't something candidates typically do anymore in uh, outside of Democratic primaries. You might occasionally see an ad like that but not in general elections. Yeah, we have seen this pattern with the special elections that we've seen since the election of Republicans sort of complaining about tactics uh, of their candidate campaigns. And on the other side, we've seen Democrats complaining about the lack of investment from the sort of in, the, the, the institutional infrastructure of the Democratic Party and the professional left. I don't think you can... Not a problem We're here. not going to see no. that in this case. I mean, we're talking now about... Uh, uh, $50 million spent, including uh, 25 to $30 million in the runoff. Um, Ossoff getting a lot of support from national Democratic groups, ditto, handle. But, you know, the thing I think is so interesting with Ossoff, looking at his campaign finance report through the end of May, raised $23.6 million. Well, $15.3 million of that came from small donors. That shows that the base is energized, that they're pouring money in, as the Republicans would say, from out of state, but that they're pouring small donations in online to this campaign. That's a good sign for Democrats. Yeah. I will say the one thing, it's talking to Democrats involved in this race who are watching it closely, some of the outside groups, there is this still this impending sense of doom, though, hanging over all of them. Even though Ossoff is averaging, he's he's getting 50% or 51% in a lot of polling. Uh, he's leading in almost every poll. But there are so many, there have been so many close races in Republican-leaning territory over the past few years where Democrats went in on Election Day thinking that their local candidate had it, and the entire undecided vote swung against them. Turnout maybe wasn't quite as good as they thought it was going to be, and they ended up with an L instead of a W. 
Uh, I, you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see what happens in Georgia. I'm obviously I'm we've been talking about it for like six months now, so I'm very excited to finally have some numbers to pour over on Tuesday night. That's what it's like being a nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, we're going to be up late Tuesday night. Go to Politico.com. We're going to have some amazing maps, among other things, of the results it's as they really roll in. Great to be I'm going to be on vacation between my two jobs, <laughs> but I'll be thinking of you being up late in the Roslyn World HQ of Politico and missing you guys and. Also missing the free food. Always delicious uh, election night fare brought in at Politico. Taylor Gourmet sometimes. We see we have Lebanese see, th- Taverna. This is, this, is, uh, this is presidential bias going on here. There's, no, there's never yeah, any food brought in. We don't get food for, these, for, for the down ballot race. All right, now. suckers. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that's about it for our show this week. Thank you for being here, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Eliana. Thank you. And before we sign off, again, a very special thanks to Ken Vogel, who is appearing on his final Nerdcast today. As we mentioned at the top of the show, he's heading to the New York Times after a decade-plus at Politico, an incredible run. And uh, Ken, rest assured, we're going to miss you. Nerdcast is going to be a slightly lower-volume place, uh, as (laughs) As will the rest of the newsroom. (laughs) Right. Well, I appreciate it, Scott, and I had an amazing uh, run at Politico. I owe my journalism career to Politico. It was the honor and privilege of... Uh, my professional life, and it was a privilege to be on the Nerdcast all these months with you guys. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Remember, if you enjoy the Nerdcast, please rate us, subscribe, and write a written review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. The more feedback we receive, the better we can make the show, and we are always looking to make it better for you guys. Also, remember, if you have questions, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. So once again, a thank you to our listeners, thank you to our panel, and thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, Nerdcast illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico web producer, Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week.